We're going to turn to our final debate of today. The proposition, which I'm going to ask you all to vote on, if you will pick up your clickers, is Xi Jinping will make economic liberalization a higher priority during his second term. So at the 19th Party Congress last month, Chinese President Xi Jinping further bolstered his power, creating a new era defined by his rule. Xi Jinping's thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era was incorporated into the party constitution. Xi's success at the party congress has effectively erased the reins of his two predecessors, some say, Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin, and have put Xi Jinping, again, some say, on a par with Mao Zedong. Now that Xi Jinping has secured even greater authority, he may, or maybe we should say might, have sufficient political clout and uh, capital to pursue economic reform in earnest. Time is of the essence as problems within the Chinese economy continue to mount. Will Xi Jinping accord priority to economic liberalization during his second term? Or will market liberalization continue to take a backseat to party-driven economic policy? Debating this question, we have on my right, Damien Ma, a fellow at the Paulson Institute, University of Chicago, focused on investment and policy programs. He's also an adjunct lecturer at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. And then to my left is Ann Stevenson-Young, who is the co-founder and research director of J Capital Research, and her areas of uh, research um, have included solar, internet, medical devices, property, some consumer and direct sales uh, names, and uh, China's macro economy, um, and worked also as an industry analyst and trade advocate, um, heading the U.S. Information Technology Office and the China Operations of the U.S. Business, business, uh, US business Council um, for over 25 years in China. So um, let's, uh, let's see what your your votes uh, tally up to. So we have 39% yes, oops, okay. Final votes coming in. It's okay, keep on voting. Keep on voting. We're gonna, we're gonna let you tally up all those, all those votes. We now have 40% yes and 58% no. Okay, all right, now we've gone 41.57 and I think we'll close it there. Uh, and we are going to turn to Damien Ma uh, to argue the affirmative of uh, the proposition that Xi Jinping will make economic liberalization a higher priority during his second term. Over to you, Damien. Oh, of course. I don't know if it's, yeah. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Bonnie, and thank you to CSIS and China Power for having me here. This is my first outing at the China Power debate, uh, and uh, I'm just delighted to be here with such a distinguished group of folks that have uh, spoke up before me, and as well as the experts and specialists in the room. Um, and thank you also for having a Paulson Institute double feature, and I just hope I don't completely embarrass Evan uh, with my comments uh, for the remainder of my 10 minutes. So. Um, 
I, I see that I do have uh, a little bit of a hill to climb, a, uh, a, a tougher task, a taller order for me to kind of persuade parts of the room. Uh, I, I was kind of expecting that, so I will try to do my best to shift opinion a little bit, and hopefully my argument will stick with the room. Um, but before I begin, I think it's important to really uh, deconstruct uh, the, the, the proposition a little bit to make sure we're very specific about what this proposition is and isn't and what we're actually debating because we are we need to be debating uh, uh, strictly in accordance with the proposition. So can we go to slide number two? Um, so I've highlighted a few terms in the proposition that, that I want to go over quickly in terms of definitional issues. Uh, uh, first of all is the idea of economic liberalization. Uh, I believe any kind of economic liberalization in China is really going to be a bounded type of liberalization. It's never going to be dramatic or big bang type of liberalization going forward. Uh, China is not going to suddenly become Chile in the 1980s and adopt market shock therapy. That is not going to happen. Uh, it's a bounded form of liberalization. And let's also be specific about the fact uh, that, this, uh, that, this is, uh, that this is really exclusively economic, not political liberalization. I don't think anybody thinks Xi Jinping is, is a closet political liberal, but that question is, is irrelevant to the, to the terms of this particular proposition. We're talking exclu uh, exclusively on economic liberalization. Um, and, and, and this proposition also does not encompass whether economic liberalization has been fully and effectively executed. Um, and it's really just about whether it will be a higher priority. Uh, I think whether the policies have been uh, implemented faithfully or fully is a very worthwhile debate, but that's a completely separate debate that I'm happy to engage with maybe in the Q&As, uh, but that is not within the scope of this particular proposition. And finally, sec uh, not finally, but second term. This means, uh, this implies, I, I, I think it's interesting that it's not worded as Xi Jinping's final term, right? So it, it's his second term, meaning from 2017 to 2022. So it's time bounded relative to his first term, 2012 to 2017. Whether he serves a, th a third term is completely irrelevant to this proposition. Again, that's another thing we can debate. Finally, a higher priority. This implies strongly that it's relative to his first term that he's going to make economic liberalization a higher priority than the first term. Well, since there was very little focus at all on economic policy in the first term, I personally benefit from the low expectations and low base effect. And because relative to the first term, he clearly is going to prioritize economic reforms higher than the first term. So before I drop the mic and do my victory lap, uh, I will do my best to flesh out why I argued this way and, and hopefully provide some main points and along with some visual aids uh, to, to give you some supporting evidence. Um, just before Warren, I will get a little bit wonky here, uh, uh, but I, I'm going to try to keep it as lively as I can. I know this is the final session of the day. So uh, can we go to the, the, uh, the, that slide, which is uh, my argument rests on four baskets of points, four main points. And I'm going to go through each one of them uh, uh, in, in sequence, obviously. Let me talk first about what I mean by political conditions. Um, I think it's important to connect uh, uh, any economic liberalization reform agenda going forward to uh, 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 to kind of the political dynamic that's happening in China right now. What I mean by that is that China is no longer in a period of economic growth will lift all boats. Th that period is over. Any kind of reform dividends that the top leaders uh, talk about incessantly, uh, those are going to only apply to some, and they're going to have to be losers. That's the nature of reforms going forward. 
because a big part of uh, economic liberalization and reforms requires redistribution and reallocation of wealth and resources. As soon as you have clear losers, politics come into being, the po and economics turn into much more of a political game. With politics come interest groups. Now, some have dismissed that Beijing's incessant talk of vested interests is simply a, a sort of a, a sort, sort of a justification for political retribution. Uh, I don't take. I don't take. I don't think. Uh, it, it, I, I actually don't think people should take vested interests so casually, um, because uh, because functionally, when it comes to economic reforms or the politics of economic liberalization, functionally in practice. Uh, uh, the, uh, the interest-driven type of politics that's happening in China right now is not so different from a lot of the interest group politics we see here in the United States. Who are these interest groups? Well, one of them clearly is local governments. Why? Because they have been one of the major beneficiaries, beneficiaries of the current reform dividends. Uh, that's why they are a very strong interest group in defending the status quo. Uh, collectively, they're obviously politically uh, powerful. Uh, not necessarily because they can actively and consistently shape Beijing's uh, policy choices, per se, but because they can deny Beijing's will. Theirs is what I would might call a politics of obstinacy. So, this leads to a broader point about how central local tensions and lines of authority have been a long-standing feature, and not a bug, it's always a feature of Chinese governance. It has been one of the toughest conundrums for any Chinese leader, including Xi Jinping and everyone before him. And whether you agree with what she's doing or not, he, he certainly seems to me has been much more preoccupied with, with dealing with this governance issue in his first term than on economics. Because I think his assessment, his diagnosis is essentially that the key to getting economic reforms and liberalization done effectively is, uh, it is to realign central local politics. Um, and uh, um, I think the key here is to, it's, it's not about what to do anymore in terms of economic liberalization and reform, it's about how to do it, how to operationalize it, and that requires realigning central local incentives. So the underlying intent of realigning these central local incentives is to make sure that local governments, the beneficiaries, are no longer profiting from uh, what might be called the growth mandate, but actually focus on better governance and delivering on post-growth needs, which is about the new contradiction that I'll get to in my second point in just a minute. So. What, what she has really been doing for the better part of the previous five years is essentially trying to address this politics of obstinacy, uh, or commonly referred to as the emperor is far away problem. We've all heard that term, the emperor is far away. Uh, this is why he has sent uh, anti-corruption teams all around the provinces. Uh, the same goes for the latest environmental supervision teams. They've reportedly covered all 31 provinces and regions across China. What she's basically saying here is that I, I may be personally far away in Zhongnanhai, but my people are scaling the mountains and coming to an anti-corruption bureau near you. So you better watch out. Uh, so I think there's a, a compelling argument to be made here that many of these efforts in the first term were essentially a monumental behavior modification campaign through shock and awe, which are, which are the words that anti-corruption czar Wang Qishan has used, shock and awe. Um, in another way of looking at it, uh, it, it, it's essentially some concepts for uh, the rising field of behavior economics can, can be unapplied here. China, to me, is essentially a big behavior economics experiment. Well, the central concept of behavior economics is you, uh, state or, 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 or the policymaker set a, a set of choices that nudge people toward a specific outcome, a policy nudge. But in China's authoritarian system, it's really more of a political shove because it's more coercive and, and authoritarian. So, 
why does all this matter in the first term? Well, this all matters because it leads to the 19th, 19th Party Congress. Uh, setting these political conditions, realigning incentives matter a lot because uh, any economic reforms has to happen in tandem with the shifting of underlying incentives, and I'll explain really why the 19th Party, uh, 19th Party uh, Congress tried to do that with a new contradiction. Next slide. I thought this cartoon captured very well uh, what I was feeling after the uh, speech came out. Uh, I didn't use a magnifying glass, but, uh, and I didn't, re I, th I think I read about 30,000 characters. I skipped maybe 2,000 of them, but uh, I pretty much read all of it. And uh, uh, what I can discern from that is that uh, what the new contradiction to me was getting at was really trying to uh, uh, shift one of the most in enduring incentives, which I said which I said earlier is the growth mandate, or I sometimes call it a GDP fetish. So it's important in my view that she clearly danced around a concrete GDP target in his 19th Congress speech, but even more significantly than that is what he actually means by the new contradiction. Next slide, please. So um, just to quickly set up, since I have some, some Chinese text there, I want to explain. The left English uh, a graph is actually from my book that I published a few years ago that I think very clearly explains exactly what the new contradiction stands for. And the right is an explanation that came out just a few weeks ago from the Central Party School. And basically, the highlighted Chinese text is about that China is no longer in the period of hard needs, meaning economic growth, GDP growth, infrastructure. Uh, you know, high-speed bullet trains, those types of hard needs, and they're in the era of soft needs. And any of you who've spoken to Chinese interlocutors in recent years, they often use the dichotomy of hardware versus software, right? Hardware is the infrastructure, the roads, the bridges. Software is the governance systems, the demands from the Chinese public. It, it even includes uh, political life, which you do not hear very much in Chinese uh, ch Chinese official rhetoric, talks about cultural, spir uh, spiritual, uh, cultural spiritualism and even of uh, common values. Uh, you don't hear that very much also in official rhetoric coming out of the 19th Party Congress. So in my view, uh, this really is, uh, she is trying to slowly lay the groundworks to de-emphasize the GDP target. It's not gonna evaporate overnight. It clearly, is, they're still gonna have targets for the next a few years, but it could quickly become softer targets that matter less and less over time. Um, but what this means is that once you're shifting off the growth imperative model, again, the local governments are the ones that, that stand to lose a lot because they have benefited from that model. Um, so there is a lot of status quo inertia, and, uh, and that's why she is doing the other uh, strategy, which is sending CCDI teams across the country to breathe down their necks to make sure they have a correct understanding of the new contradiction. Um, but this is an institutionalization of the anti-corruption system. It's no longer about the shock and awe of the first five years. And this also is gonna lead to a weakening of the fierce politics of the first term. And I have another piece of evidence on the next slide that I'd like to show you. Again, not to get too into the weeds, but I compare two exact paragraphs from the 18th party speech and the 19th party speech. And I'll explain why that's important. On the left side is the 18th party speech. And you see on the bottom, it's the same exact graph in, 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 in two documents, uh, five years apart. There's about six lines, nearly six lines, devoted specifically to anti-corruption, all right? Um, and, and cadres who've lost their way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Bureaucratism, formalism, the terms that we started to get really familiar with starting in 2013. In the right-hand column, on the 19th, same exact paragraph, zero lines about anti-corruption. 
The only half a line is about party building hasn't been fully completed. But crucially, uh, party building hasn't been completed comes after, um, uh, uh, after governance, CCDI system institutionalization, and certain reforms and key related policies need to be further executed. Very clearly recognized in this specific paragraph and all corruption language is completely out. Why this matters? You may think it's merely reading tea leaves. It matters because Xi Jinping is well known to have led the drafting of the 18th Party Congress speech. Uh, all the corruption language clearly was his and it defined his first term, if you just read it carefully. That was exactly the language that he spoke about for the first five years. So it is, I think, a notable change when all, all these lines are out, replaced by something else very differently with a focus on reforms and uh, key related policies need to be further advanced. Uh, so that's my uh, second point on new contradictions and why that's important in shifting incentives. Third, personnel. Um, I don't have a slide for that, but I think a major goal, it's clear that she was also trying to get a lot of his people uh, and, and key allies into certain positions. Uh, now that the Congress is over, we can clearly see how successful, how successful he was with that particular effort. So given the outcome of the personnel front, at a minimum, I think he will have a more united team behind the agenda. He laid out at the 19th Congress related to the new contradiction and all of the likely new vice premiers who are gonna be managing the economy. Uh, you know, they're not gonna be hardcore laissez-faire market disciples, but I don't think there are any hardcore market disciples left in China, but none of them are actually any, you know, are particularly anti-market, uh, and they tend to be pragmatists that have uh, argued more for reforms at various times. Uh, look, I only have about a minute left, so I'm gonna to try to rush through this very quickly. Um, Beyond the center, Xi Jinping has also put a bunch of his uh, personnel and allies in the provinces, again, to solve the emperor's faraway problem. So a, lot of, so a lot of the allies are hopefully gonna help to realign the central local uh, um, incentives. And uh, let me move to the next slide, which is my final point, uh, final main point, which is a lot of anniversaries are coming up in China. I don't have to go through every single one, uh, but the reason I bring that up is that I don't think they ought to be trivialized in part because they affect the thinking of Chinese policymakers and because I think they specifically affect the thinking of Xi Jinping because a lot of these specific anniversaries are his own kind of uh, part of his own agenda. And in some sense, they can serve as action forcing events uh, or catalyze major policy shifts and announcements. So Xi has already been on the record very clearly publicly that he wants to celebrate the 40th anniversary of reform and opening up in 2018 next year. So in fact, I think it's possible that the third plenum next year could be more important for uh, reforms going forward than the last third plenum. Uh, and of course, uh, we are very close to his first centenary goal, 2021 goal, so he's under pressure to deliver. Uh, I find it hard to believe that he doesn't understand that to deliver on his goal, he needs a dynamic economy that's strong and enduring, not one that's resting on shaky foundations. So he's under pressure to do a lot more on the, on the uh, uh, reform side than he has done so far. And he has already, uh, I think last year, started taking more of a leadership role on the financial sector. Uh, so I will just end, since my time is out, I will end in 30 seconds by, by returning to my uh, first point about bounded liberalization. Uh, I think it is clear, based on my reading and based on my argument, uh, that uh, Xi Jinping will clearly make economic reforms a higher priority. It will be a bounded sort of, uh, it will still be bounded, gradual and experimental, but it's certainly gonna take a, a higher, uh, 
take more of a front seat uh, than in the first five years. What I will look at is some of the uh, uh, free trade zones that's been established. I think China is really going to start empowering those. Whether you agree that they're effective or not, China is going to start empowering them. And uh, it's important to recognize that the FTZs now, unlike the previous FTZs, which, which were laboratories for contained experiments on markets and private sector, uh, FTZs now are really about experimenting with policy and governance and market access. Uh, one, uh, one specific example I, I will bring up is that the idea of a negative list approach to opening up sectors to foreign investment came out of the Shanghai FTZ. They first tested it, they first tested it there. Whether it's fully effective and whether that negative list is too long, too long or too short, that's up for debate. But at a minimum, that approach came out of the Shanghai FTZ and it's going to be adopted nationwide. So this is where they're thinking about FTZs as future contained laboratories for opening up liberalization. And so look for those as kind of vehicles for future liberalization. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Damien. Anne, okay. your turn. All right. All right, so I've heard conflicting information about how long I'm supposed to take, but I'm sure you will tell me, so I will just stop when I stop. So, okay. So um, I have great respect for Damien Dr. Ma's work, but I consider this a long, slow pitch over home plate because the argument here, uh, I know I'm not supposed to rebut now, but nevertheless, the argument here in, in a nutshell is she is so very strong, he's strengthened his base, he's consolidated power, and he says he's going to reform. Well, we've, we've heard this narrative before. So I think it really doesn't surprise anyone that Xi Jinping has emerged from the 19th Party Congress with uncontested power and influence. After all, last year, he already essentially stated that he would be a leader for life when he changed the party constitution to say that comrade Xi Jinping would be the core of the party rather than general secretary Xi Jinping. In other words, he's going to be the new Deng Xiaoping. What is new about the 19th Party Congress is the optics, the very visible declarations of the administration's intent to continue an advance of the party and a retreat of the civil government. And that, I believe, is anti-reform in any way that we might understand reform. So there are two aspects to reform. There are plans and there's implementation. So let's start with implementation. And I understand the point of view that the past is no guide. It's irrelevant to the proposition. But it is, after all, the only means we have to check the, uh, the I, I think that the assertion actually is, uh, is, is both, um, is both ahistorical and illogical that you consolidate power in order to release power. But let's go through the, uh, the, the sort of illogical portion first, uh, which is just disproven by uh, facts of the last five years. So in the implement, on the implementation side, the 18th Party plenum uh, was seen, the, the, the 18th Party Congress was seen as a great statement of intention to reform. Um, I believe that that misunderstood the communique from the 18th Party Congress, which was actually about bringing the resources of the private sector to the service of government objectives. But even if you believed that it was a reform communique, 
uh, it, I think the events of the last five years have shown that there has been no progress on any of these initiatives. So I, I listed a few, not in any particular order. One key objective was to reform interest rates. That has not been done. In fact, capital has massively and preferentially gone to the government and state sector. The only change in, uh, in, in capital allocation, other than to uh, accelerate the use of investment over the last five years, has been to use means of more direct control over the banks, uh, rather than macro controls so, such as the triple R rate and interest rates. So the regulators have, for example, open discount windows with 12 banks bilaterally. They have uh, sanctioned banks for, for uh, borrowing and lending in the interbank market at rates that are considered too high. So they've driven the uh, interbank market into an off-market off OTC uh, where, where bankers actually trade on WeChat. They bid and, and offer on WeChat uh, because they're, they're bidding and offering at rates that aren't optically permitted. Um, they've required banks to lower their short-term interbank investments um, in order to make the interbank market optically more, um, you know, deleveraged, and that's driven this this money into uh, much more risky and illi illiquid investments. Um, and I could go on. There's no HUCO reform, as was uh, much discussed before, the, before 2012. And in fact, major cities, including Beijing, are driving migrants out. So Beijing's, uh, ever, for the last three years or so, it's been uh, pushing the, uh, what you used to call open markets or free markets, out into zones in Hebei province and trying to force uh, migrants to resettle in the sort of banned uh, outside of, of Beijing or else to go home. There's been no land reform. Uh, remember the, the famous uh, reform experimentation of Chongqing, um, and this was decisively ended when the uh, city party leaders were deposed. There's no property tax. There's a new, there's a new fairly weak um, proposal that, that, that a property tax be added. It essentially will be a surcharge on VAT and not, or on, in, on corporate income tax rather, uh, and not a true property tax. And I think that this is a fundamental problem uh, as long as the government is unable to uh, allow local governments to make their own budgets and spend their own money. It just, there's no reason why local government should implement a property tax. Um, and planning in the state sector have taken the lead uh, oh, the one-child policy, too. So the one-child policy was supposed to be eliminated. Instead, they created a two-child policy, which, in effect, had already been implemented. I think I see this as the failure to, uh, or the inability to get rid of a large bureaucracy. Uh, the, the, the family planning bureaucracy is extremely intrusive, uh, disliked by the population, and unnecessary. Um, and it should have been eliminated when the policy was, was loosened, so why wasn't it? I think that's simply a weakness of the government. Um, and since, um, since Damien mentioned the GDP mandate, let's also point out that the, that the GDP mandate was supposed to have been dropped in 2012. It wasn't. Uh, now they've mentioned again that they're going to relax it. I, I propose that the only reason they've done that is because they achieved 6.9% in the first nine months of the year, and therefore they can drop it for the last quarter. The GDP target is a, is a key organizational target, uh, organizational 
national strategy. For the government, all of SASAC operates and, and writes budgets based on the GDP target. It's just infeasible to drop it, and I think it will not be dropped. Um, so so that's the those are some examples along the implementation line. Structurally, I think that it's pretty clear that Xi Jinping's intentions Yes, they're ambitious, but also retrograde. Uh, the restructuring is leading to greater centralization, lesser autonomy on the part of local officials, and much tighter social control. So some examples there, supply-side reform. Supply-side reform, um, it's kind of a brilliant sales strategy because you've attached the name reform to what actually is production plans. Supply-side reform is very clearly a 1970s strategy. Um, the plan issues production targets to steel mills, coal mines, aluminum smelters, and other heavy industry uh, participants, uh, to and it shifts more volume from the private sector to the state. Um, so overwhelmingly the shuttered capacity, in fact, I think exclusively the shuttered capacity has been in the private sector to the extent that it still exists in, this, in the steel sector. Um, and that, this, this mirrors exactly what happened with coal, coal sector reform in the, I think it was the first, like 2004 or five, I forget exactly, um, when originally private capital was invited into the coal sector and then uh, once a lot of coal mines had been developed, Beijing uh, took its central level companies and had them buy up the, the, the uh, private coal mines at low prices. Um, and re-centralized under, uh, under the state. Um, there's been a, an undermining of the, uh, of the civil economic bureaucracy. I think that you know, Xi Jinping, we all know, has formed leading groups in order, to, um, in order to have authority over all sorts of aspects of the economy. Um, and he's sidelined, I think we all agree, sidelined side Li Keqiang. Um, his about face from Deng's decentralization focus, I think, is, uh, is nowhere more apparent than the elevation to the standing committee of Wang Huning, um, who is a, you know, acclaimed for, is an academic, as we all know, and he's acclaimed for his skill in shaping leaders' ideas into theory. Um, and his writings have, have long warned of the risks to stability of decentralization, which is quite the opposite of Deng Xiaoping's program. Um, there's been an almost complete shutdown of debate and exchange. Uh, there's no more um, white papers with dissenting opinions out of the central um, you know, think tanks or bureaucracies. There are no more conferences on, on you know, differing opinions. It's very hard to find academics who will express opinions different to, uh, to central government policy. And there's a visible deterioration in the quality of economic statistics. I could give you lots and lots of examples of that. One example is uh, in March of 2014, the government, or 2015 rather, the government uh, made it optional for companies to, private companies to report their financial uh, results publicly. They had always reported these to the SAIC and the SAIC made them to some extent public, and it became optional um, in 2015, so we no longer have that information. So I, I think that the importance of this change really can't be uh, overstated. Um, it, it really shuts down the, um, the ability of people to contribute to debate and uh, innovation as a, as a consequence. Um, and it's a very serious impediment to innovation. 
There's also this idea in the central government that big data can be used to implement a planned economy in a way that was never possible in the 1970s uh, when China tried it in the past. This is uh, stated by a number of central government leaders and by people like Jack Ma, who clearly has a personal interest in it, but nevertheless, I think it is, and clearly the implement st implementation strategies for using big data and the, um, uh, the credit records and so forth uh, envision something far more ambitious than, we all know it's not about credit, it's about sort of social credit, but these, the use of these records envisions something far more ambitious than simply um, extending credit to or creditability to individuals. So, um, oh, and also there's the China 2025 plan, um, which I think has, creates a, or, or emphasizes a clear focus on import substitution and uh, the aggregation of capital. I believe that uh, China's, uh, China's current leadership uh, has strongly affirmed the idea that China must maintain trade surpluses and that this will maintain the strength of the economy. Um, and then there's a there's the small matter of um, I, I find that that the analyst community tends to like Liu He a lot. Liu He is you know rumored to be elevated to a vice premier. I consider this another sign, actually, of a weakening of the apparatus. Liu He is, is widely liked because you know he speaks English well. He went to Harvard. He sounds good, um, but he's actually a guy with a very weak uh, bureaucratic base. Uh, no base of his own, and weak sort of, sort of you know bureaucratic charisma. I think that he's he's symptomatic of the way in which Xi Jinping prefers to elevate people around him who are no threat, and that becomes something very dangerous. Um, so, I think that the uh, that that the visit to the am I out of time yet? Not quite. No? Okay. So the visit to the... Our timekeeper uh, in the back, how much more time do we have? Two minutes. All right, then I'll skip the visit to the Forbidden City part. Uh, let's see, where, what would I like to, to finish up with? I, I think that China has... Um, the change with Xi Jinping truly is a change. Um, the, Xi Jinping, especially with the 19th Party Congress, I think has, has uh, signaled to the world that China has emerged from its period of supplication as a poor, humble, um, third world nation and now is reclaiming its position of, you know, it's, it's repudi repudiating 150 years of humiliation, standing on its feet. This is, this is the goal of Xi Jinping's um, you know, leadership of the party. Uh, the, the means by which he chooses to pursue that, I believe, is to establish um, a set of separate institutions over which China can have a strong influence. So the Asia Infrastructure Bank, um, the, um, the payment system that's separate from SWIFT, uh, the Silk Road Initiative, and sort of the king of all of these initiatives, the One Belt, One Road Initiative, which kind of organizes all of these, these ideas together. One minute, okay, so let me see. Um, so 
that none of this, dis, you know, I, I do believe that Xi Jinping is politically a very strong leader. I think that that's antithetical to, uh, to economic reform and liberalization, uh, both uh, empirically and logically. Um, I think that um, I actually blame the, uh, the, the reforms of Zhu Rongji as much as I admired Zhu Rongji for creating the situation that we're in right now because of the extreme centralization of the government apparatus. But that's a different discussion. So Xi Jinping is an ambitious leader, not in the economy, but in driving China, I think, back to uh, a more modernized uh, 1970s type structure. To say all this is not, not to say that he will necessarily be strong uh, or be, be you know, effective at, at accomplishing these goals. Uh, Xi Jinping, okay, Xi Jinping reminds me, Reminds me of no one so much as uh, Yuan Shikai. Is it Shikai or Shikai? I, f I forget. Shikai? So, you know, as, as I think we all know, Yuan Shikai crowned himself emperor after taking over, and he lasted roughly eight months. And it was just a few years later that his uh, tomb was desecrated by Chinese soldiers. So, of course, we hope that is not the fate of Xi Jinping, but I think crowning oneself emperor in modern times uh, attracts a lot of enemies. It's a dangerous thing to do. Nevertheless, uh, economically, I would say this is, there, there's simply no sign of reform. Okay, so our technical difficulties, the second, I think the lesson we've learned is we don't wanna have a cord where somebody can step on it right next to the, uh, the table here. So apologies. All right, so we're gonna give each of our speakers uh, five minutes uh, for rebuttal. Um, and yes, it's working again, thank you. Okay, Damien, over to you. Great, thank you. And uh, that, was, that was terrific comments from, from Anne. So let me begin with where, uh, where we agree. Uh, in fact, I actually admitted that uh, I agree that much of the third plenum reforms have not really been, uh, been focused on in, the, in his first term. And that was actually the core of my argument. It was precisely because she was too focused on laying the political conditions uh, to, to make sure that he could actually implement and execute them uh, once the political conditions and the central local incentives were realigned. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, and you know, I think it's, it was, there was also a slight mischaracterization of my argument. I don't think I used the word strong at all in my, in, my, in my comments, nor did I say consolidation of power. What I focused on was really create and making sure the central local incentives were more aligned. And I think given how much problems right now are at the local level, it seems like under the Chinese current system with its, all, with its constraints and, and warts, uh, there's very few options that they can do other than centralized aspects of it. Uh, I think one important thing that I did not mention is um, uh, the, the, in my view, the pretty utter and total destruction of the National Development and Reform Commission. Um, they've taken away pricing power from it. They've taken away, uh, they've taken away basically project approval power from it. Uh, NDRC, of course, is the legacy state planner, probably the the most the, the biggest emblem of state planning. But uh, Liu He, as Ann mentioned, is actually vice chair. But that that that's a meaningless title. Uh, NDRC under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao work was uh, nicknamed the Mini State Council. That was how powerful it was. Does anyone even know who the head of NDRC is today? Very few, very, few, very few people do because it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter anymore. So uh, to me, that, that's a pretty severe destruction of NDRC. And look at where, where, was the, uh, where, was, where did the anti-corruption campaign hit first? 
NDRC, NEA. That was the very first part it went after. So uh, finally, uh, I, I, would, I would also suggest that the supply side reforms, I think some of it is what Ann said, is about redistributing excess capacity and so on. But a lot of it is literally uh, tied to the uh, insufficient part of the new contradiction. It does not necessarily mean just switching capacity or switching an investment or capital away, reallocating it away from places that have excess capacity. It's about boosting, uh, boosting supply to places, uh, to, to, to things like healthcare, uh, uh, you know, services, things that, 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 that is supposed to drive the, uh, the future of the Chinese economy. Whether you agree they will actually succeed, that's hard to say. Uh, and finally, uh, I will also th say that at the outset, I was pretty clear that the, uh, the, um, a uh, specific proposition does not incorporate whether implementation has been successful or not. Uh, and I, 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 would, I, would, I would argue that, sure, we can totally have a debate about that in the Q&A, like I said, but I think it is purely about whether Xi Jinping will make it a higher priority in his second term. And I think uh, from all the evidence I presented, it seems pretty clear that there's not much lower he can go from the first first five years, so uh, so I think it is very clear. It is very clear uh, that he's going to make it a much higher priority in a second term. Well, I agree that the proposition does not include um, the record of the past, but I do think that record of the past is what we have to judge uh, intention of the future. Uh, China for China. Um, the attitude of public markets toward China's uh, liberal, liberal or conservative orientation has been very, very important to China uh, as a way to attract capital for 30 years now. And, and there's a certain amount of signaling that goes around that. Um, and uh, there, China has no interest, no more than China would withdraw from the WTO and the UN and, and the IMF, um, even as it starts to, to focus its efforts on alternative institutions, no more than it would do that would China say, oh, sorry, we're, we're socialist again. Uh, we, we're giving up this liberalization path because why give, give up the uh, incoming capital flows that you, that you receive by positioning your companies as private, thriving, growing, and totally independent of the state, when in reality that is a, a fiction. As to the specific comments, um, the destruction of the NDRC, I mean, for, for many, many, China, China's is a very bureaucratic system. And he who manages to, uh, to master bureaucracies also manages to, to promote his, his or her own political plans. So we've seen Chinese leaders uh, over decades uh, choose different institutions as their bases because they had uh, stronger bases there. For example, under uh, Zhao Ziyang, we had the, uh, what was it called, State Commission on Economic Reform of Society, whatever, SCRESS. Um, we had, uh, you know, the, it, it moves around here to there depending on where leaders have their roots. I consider whether the NDRC is up or down to be uh, irrelevant to everything except the inside politics of particular leaders and their bases. Um, and uh, yeah, the second point was just on whether the, um, I, think I, I, I was just eliding your point about the anti-corruption corruption movement to, to call it strength. And I think we could probably agree on that, that, uh, that, that the successful completion of all these anti-corruption campaigns uh, means a type of political strength. 
And I think that your fundamental argument is that given that strength, then she will be able to implement his program. Is that, is that right? Is that fair? Um, and I consider that uh, ahistorical, as I mentioned, and, um, and, and also empirically untrue. I don't think that any political leader can afford to centralize power, depend on a smaller number of supporters, and then extend the benefits of those reforms to a broader group. Just look at George, George W. Bush and his commitment not to raise taxes and then raising taxes and being ousted, you know, losing, losing the second, second bid at office. Okay, we are down to our final Q&A session, um, which we will do for about 15 minutes and then uh, take our final votes. Uh, but uh, let me turn the, uh, the floor or the opportunity over to the audience to ask some questions. This uh, woman over here, thank you very much. Hello, I'm Angeline Marzan from Manila Mail. Um, Ms. Ann, if you believe that the president of I'm Mr. G does not have as a priority economic liberalization, what then is his priority? So oh, I, I think his priority is the is the glory and survival of the Communist Party, uh, particularly past the the shelf life of the Soviet Communist Party, which lasted seventy years. So that makes twenty twenty the year. I think that that's. I think he believes the rejuvenate, rejuvenation of the of the Communist Party, and its uh, strengthened leadership, which probably includes recapturing some of the um, you know asserting some some of these irredentist claims on Taiwan and Hong Kong uh, and you know, possibly other areas, I think that that's, uh, those are key goals of his administration, not economic strength. Right back here. Thank you. A reporter from Voice America. I have a question for Mr. Marr. Will there be a point when you cannot push for economic reform without liberalizing your uh, Political system. In other words, can uh, Xi Jinping? Uh, when will the political ref uh, political system of China become obstacle of the economic reform? Thank you. I think there's always been a tendency to uh, correlate political liberalization and economic uh, dynamism. Or I, I think that correlation holds in some cases, but it, but it, but it does. Uh, it's not convincing to me that it just, uh, you know, I've read a lot of kind of literature on that and it's not clear that there is a very strong correlation on certain types of economic liberalization. Uh, I think it certainly could potentially stymie, you know, parts of parts of China's innovation ecosystem as we heard uh, earlier uh, in uh, on the panels. Um, but I also think that the kinds of reforms they're trying for now, which uh, does actually deal with a lot of the governance, um, it's not about democratic governance. It's it's about a kind of a a, a more kind of a, um, uh, I guess a a a a sort of more uh, competent, humane type of governance along the lines of Singapore that I think that the Chinese leadership has always looked to in 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 some respects. So I think that's kind of about the best you can expect. And I think people, like I said earlier, people should not be expecting this kind of full fleshed out market shock therapy liberalization that we saw in the 1970s and 80s around the world, that's just not going to be realistic in China's context. Okay, another question? 
Yes, over here, and then we'll go over there in that corner. Hi, uh, Rudy from EFOD. I have a question like uh, for Dr. Ma and uh, uh, maybe for both of the presenters. Uh, you briefly, uh, Dr. Ma briefly mentioned that uh, the change in the growth mandate to a more like uh, economic liberalization, like uh, like I mean like a soft mandate. So uh, people, there, uh, there's been debate on like the the growth mandate was like linked to the ruling legitimacy of CCP in China. So if so, would you? Uh, would like liberalization of economy, as you said, would create the new legitimacy for the party? Or, uh, I mean, as the other uh, other side's opinion, if there's like liberalization was not a like a priority for the country, uh, what is the source for new legitimacy of the country coming from? Well, since it's for both of us, I'll go first, um, since I'm older. <laughs> um, I, think, uh, I think it's very clear that for the last five years, Xi Jinping has been trying to reset expectations in China um, at, toward uh, more, more modest living, uh, instead of get, to get rich is glorious, which was Deng Xiaoping's supposed slogan. Uh, instead, it's, um, it's moderately uh, prosperous society. Uh, it's that uh, you're, you're no longer is ostentation accepted. Uh, ostentatious uh, wealth consumption is, is frowned upon. You're supposed to have modest needs, and this is simply a reflection of reality. The idea now is that China, the nation, will be glorious rather than the individuals who get rich. And so the way that China, will, the, China the nation will be glorious will be a strong renminbi externally, um, power in the, uh, in, in the Belt and Road areas, uh, and more international respect. I think that that's the grounding of his legitimacy as he sees it. I'll just add quickly, I think the, uh, the problem with the GDP target was that it was a simple quantitative target that was easy for everybody to know. If you needed to hit your numbers, uh, well, you can put up a duplicative steel factory, but you know that might have less excess capacity, but that also met some numbers and kept jobs. So that was how a lot of local governments operated for a long time. So delinking that, or even watering down the, uh, the primacy of the target, the GDP quantitative target, by, 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 put, uh, by putting it among a dashboard of new targets like environmental, governance, uh, healthcare, quality of life, those types of things. So that I think just by, by virtue of watering that down, it will gradually shift, over, uh, shift, shift the, the primacy of the GDP quantitative target. Uh, and I think that's an important, if not immediate signal to all local governments that uh, they're they're going to have to, like I said, lose from from uh, from the next round of economic liberalization and reforms. Okay, we have a question over there. Hello, uh, my name is Matthew Eyes from the Asia Society Policy Institute. I had a question, actually, uh, two questions, very quickly, um, for uh, Ms. Stevenson Young, um, more towards a question of will Xi Jinping just liberalize because it works in the interest of China for instance uh, in made in 2025 um, certain sectors like uh, energy and sustainable energy uh, it seems that President Xi Jinping has even in the recent trip from President Trump opened up symbolically to new uh, sources American sources especially also in the financial sector um, and for uh, Mr. Ma, uh, what, how can you comment on 
President Xi, in President Xi's speech, how he said that the private sector is supposed to now work for the glory of the nation. Doesn't that seem to prove the point that it's not really uh, going to be fully private, fully liberalized, that it's always going to be within the confines of the CCP? Let me take the first one there. I think that the Made in China 2025 plan, as I mentioned, is very clearly an import substitution plan. I think that uh, China is, of course, an importer of oil. Uh, and I think that is the source of China's uh, focus on renewable energy sources and also on uh, electric cars. You notice that in, electric, in the electric car plan, for example, the, the focus is on pure electrics rather than on hybrids. And why is that? Because hybrid technology is quite mature and is owned by overseas companies, whereas China makes a ton of batteries and, and needs outlets for them. Um, I do not see 2020, Made in China 2025 as a liberalization plan, but instead another industrial plan designed for the same goals as the industrial plans of the 1990s. Um, as for the financial sector opening, briefly, the opening uh, that, that was announced is a, an increase from 49% equity ownership to 51% equity ownership. The, the 20, 2001 WTO accession agreement actually promised uh, international financial institutions national treatment by this time, and yet finan international financial institutions have seen their market share in China shrink very dramatically since 2009, and now their share of assets is around 1.5% compared with an international standard of about 20%. Uh, at the same time, Chinese banks internationally, there are, I think, 30 of them in the top, top 100 or so in size. So uh, it's a very uneven picture, and I don't think that the new agreement makes a difference there. So let me clarify. Your question is about uh, how much space the private sector, sector can actually get and how, uh, how, dynam how, dy how dynamic it can be within kind of a party state system. Um, I think the best way to kind of answer your question uh, at the, at the uh, uh, um, at the outset is, is sort of a Chinese policymaker. What, what they would say is that this is China. The state sector will never disappear. Uh, the only strategy is to grow this private sector large enough so that the state sector shrinks disproportionately as, as, the, total, as the total size of the economy. So the whole guoqing mingtui, meaning state advances, private sector retreats, that to me is pretty cyclical. And I think the, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, the central state-owned enterprises, the uh, less than 100 now, after consolidation, those will never go away. They're an they're a instrument of state power. China uses it as a way to smooth out economic cycles. It's essentially a shock absorber to economic volatility, so that's a useful tool for the party. That will never go away. Um, but the key is whether the private sector can get enough space to grow so that just, uh, as a proportion of the overall economy, it's going to be uh, larger and larger, and I think that's cyclical. Okay, we had a question there. Hi, my name is Mats and I'm from Johns Hopkins Science. Um, I'm interested in hearing what you guys think that Joe Xiaotuan's recent comments on the financial sector and economy says about the future of reform in China, if anything. Thanks. 
Sure. Uh, I will make a very quick comment. I think, uh, and this is actually something I didn't talk about in my in my remarks, which is that um, I think it's it's clear from the top level down to basically local level that there are that there are a growing financial vulnerabilities, and Joe Chauvin is obviously on his way out. So I'm not surprised that he said uh, said those things, uh, uh, you know, uh, with the way that he said it. Uh, clearly, that was uh, something that he wanted to do uh, as he retires. But I think the key point there is that even President Xi Jinping has personally kind of taken uh, 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 taken hold of the financial leverage issue. He's held various meetings that he's headed himself on it. So this is also why I think the bounded liberalization is probably the best China can muster because they they know they're confronting some underlying financial vulnerabilities. It's not something, and it, the antidote to that is not necessarily wholesale liberalization. That may not actually work in the context of these financial uh, vulnerability. So I suspect there's going to be a lot of uh, 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 movement on that front over the next few years in tandem with kind of the bounded gradual liberalization on the other side. No, not really. I think that that, that uh, takes care of it. I, I, I do, on, on Zhou Xiaochen personally, I would say that he often says things that are not uh, well supported by, by future, um, his future conduct or the facts. Uh, nevertheless, I agree that this is, these are legacy comments. Um, there is, I know, a, a sort of disaster plan sitting in the, in the bowels of the NDRC think tanks uh, in, in Beijing, which includes uh, plans for what would happen if the banks uh, stopped transacting and if they went bust. I think that um, the, the central government sees this as a perfectly you know, something that they can deal with. Um, they, the, you, you often get people who compare the potential uh, bankruptcy of the big banks or, let's say, the inability to transact of the big banks to supply-side reform with the idea that you can push more transactions to the big and let go the small, let them take over the small banks, and that it will not be a disaster. Uh, you know, the Beijing in Beijing, they have the same conversations that we have here in Washington, New York, and every other place, which is that everyone is concerned that there will be a financial crisis. Um, and so it would be very um, foolish not to make plans along those lines. But the plans are, do not include liberalization. They include greater control. Uh, I personally think that bounded liberalization is not really a thing. I think that uh, you either, either liberalize or you don't. Um, I believe that the FTZs uh, are not an example of liberalization, but instead an example of, um, of sort of, you know, having your cake and eating it too. And we've never seen these experiments extend nationwide, and nor will we see experiments uh, in other parts of the economy extend nationwide. Okay, one last question right here. In the front, do we have a, yeah, microphone's on its way. Hi, thank you. I'm Uzma from George Mason Law School. My question is to um, uh, Anne. Um, one of the differences that we see between the Soviet communism and the Chinese communism was they did political reforms or political liberalization without having economic base, which in the case of China, we see that they're economically at a better stage than Soviets at that time were in the 70s. Um, what do you think that China now becoming part of uh, this multilateral Asian institutions, in, in particular the AIB, which is also doing co-projects with World Bank and ADB in which they have to implement their policies 
or they have to follow their guidelines. Do you think this is going to help uh, further the liberalization within China by being a part of the overall multilateral Asian infrastructure plans? No, I think that if, it, if, if the interest were in, uh, in liberali liberalizing and uh, increasing international involvement, then, then they would work through existing institutions. Uh, the, interest is in, um, uh, the interest is in supporting Chinese exports to those areas uh, and developing a kind of uh, closed tunnel of communication so that the sort of boundary of interaction with China moves out to this, this zone which becomes uh, comes under greater Chinese control. Did I misunderstand your question? Well, on the trade balances, I think with this uh, Belt and Road countries, they already have some maximum balance. They probably cannot, Belt and Road cannot accelerate or enhance their trade balances. Well, you can if you lend them a whole lot of money to buy stuff. That's the intention. Um, you know, to, 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 to have a lot of, uh, you know, for example, the, the, this, the government is investing uh, a stated $35 billion in order to create uh, fiber networks through, throughout uh, north-south, throughout Africa. Clearly, that would boost African economy, but the intention is to create a market for Chinese fiber and Chinese telecom services. Um, on the Soviet economy, you know, I just don't know enough about it. I don't think they're highly comparable because it's, you know, it's the Soviet economy is a, is a petroleum economy and highly, highly verticalized, also with the low population. It's just not very comparable. Um, let's just say that I think China has, um, China took very deep lessons from the uh, crack up of the Soviet Union in 1990. And those lessons were all about, uh, not about economy, but about how to organize yourself politically. And as a consequence of the, the fear of, uh, of, of crack up like the Soviet Union, uh, we had the um, you know, massive recentralization of the Zhurongji programs, which I believe drove this, the local governments into the borrowing uh, that they were required to do starting from 98. Okay, with that, I think we're going to uh, close it up and uh, we're going to vote one last time. So I hope you'll all pick up your clickers, make sure they are on and vote either for or against the proposition. Xi Jinping will make economic liberalization a higher priority during his second term. And, and my daughter better vote for me. Oh. You, you turn it on and then you vote, then you use the B. So we'll we use remember, lots of different clickers. We'll remember when we uh, started out, we had 41% in favor and 57% uh, against. So we still have more people voting. We're getting closer. That gap is narrowing a little bit. It's getting close. <laughs> We're going to give everybody another minute. Um, it's very close. This is one of uh, two of, I think, of our closest uh, debates that we have had uh, today, uh, but we've seen a little bit of a, of a shift um, in favor of yes, but uh, the no's still appear to have it at 51%. All right, please join me in thanking um, our speakers.
I want to thank all of our speakers, especially those who've come from out of town. I want to thank my staff. I want to thank all of you in the audience uh, for coming today. And I also want to thank the Carnegie Corporation of New York for their support. Thanks very much.